Hello, my name is Len. To some, I'm Dr. Bear, but to you, I'm just Len, because you and I share the same pain, same tears, and same hopes. We call ourselves targeted individuals. And if someone asks you, what is a targeted individual? You don't have to start listing all the various form it takes and everything that makes us targeted individuals. Tell them we're still looking for the right definition because it is like many other things that seem to be one thing on the surface turns out to be completely different. No matter how many millions of people believe it to be true. This is one of those cases. And narrowing it down to just one or two things doesn't do it justice. I am happy to be back hosting a podcast about an extraordinary lawsuit targeted justice v. Garland. I apologize to those of you whose curiosity I will not satisfy today by discussing why I wasn't here last Sunday, as I always am. I consider it a distraction from our main mission. Given a chance, I will leave these details for the courtroom, for a fair judge, and for a jury of my peers. As much as I regret not being able to be here last Sunday, I was in awe by the job my dear friends Anna and Richard did last weekend, who picked up the torch and without skipping a beat, gave you an hour of insight, wisdom, advice, and helpful conversations. So congratulations, Anna. You can add podcast hosting to your already impeccable resume. How are you today, Anna? I'm fine. Thank you. And I'm just so delighted to have you back because I've missed you so much. So I'm just happy to continue with our mission here. Very true. If you notice, today is not Sunday. So we will consider this a Sunday podcast on Wednesday. Only two days ago, on Monday, November 6th, the legal brief was filed in the Court of Appeals by the government defendants. And today, we are bringing you our analysis of this uh, quite peculiar document. This is our effort to bring you the news as soon as possible, so you don't have to wait six days until Sunday. Therefore, there will not be an episode on Sunday. This is it. So without further ado, let me start the slides and let Anna give us her comments. We finally have it. Document 38 in the docket. Filed November 6th, just this Monday. Brief for defendants at police. And I have so many questions. And I will start right from the beginning. The very first question that is on everybody's mind because our one of our previous episodes was about this official versus individual capacity defendant. So was the brief filed on behalf of both? Yes. As you can recall, I was worried about the fact that the individual capacity defendants hadn't made an appearance through an attorney, an individual attorney, a separate attorney from the official capacity defendants, as they had done in the district court. 
So I called and, you know, everybody knows what happened. They corrected what it seems that from the district court, they didn't send the information that they were both individual and official capacity dependents because the draft, the docket, it was docketed without those words, which when you look at other cases where Ray and Mayorkas or Garland have been sued, they always put in there the phrase in their official capacity or in their individual capacity. I have to tell you, Lynn, that in my search for cases, very few people and very few attorneys there sue public officials in their in their individual capacity. And I don't know what is the hesitancy, because in this case, it has been from the get-go, our position that they are acting beyond what the law permits them to act. And that is when you can sue them in their individual capacity, because they are acting as an abuse of discretion, as a beyond what really what the statute um, authorizes them to do. So that is the long answer. The short answer is yes, they submitted one brief on behalf by the same attorneys on behalf of FBI, DHS, official capacity defendants and individual capacity defendants. Let's go to question number two, which is since it was filed for both, do the attorneys representing both official and individual capacity defendants have a conflict of interest? And you inform me that there are court requirements that the attorney must list the interested parties they represent. And the attorneys themselves must include their names on the list of interested parties. And they didn't do it in this case. How about that, Anna? What's happening? Well, that, that's precisely the motion that I'm going to be filing today to strike the brief because it doesn't comply with the local rule 28.21 that says that they have to list every interested party. Uh, if it was just the FBI and the HS, well, they don't have to do that certification. But in here, there are people that are both in the official and individual capacity. And in prior cases, even when they're just included as official capacity, the the same attorney, the same uh, supervising attorney in this case has appeared in, for example, Getty versus Mayorkas and Kova versus Ray and Missouri versus Biden and many others. And they do have the certification of interested persons. Not only that certification has to include the names of the defendants, but also even in their official capacity, but also the names of the adversary and the counsel and the attorneys, because that's what the rule provides. Now, because the individual capacity defendants are sued uh, here too, they have to be forcefully included. Why? Because they are not sued as the government. They are sued against their own personal selves. So uh, it is my position. That's why, you know, I when I wrote the certificate of interested parties, I, I listed all the, the defendants and put and spouse because let's say that they are in a jurisdiction where there is community property. Well, if I go after an individual capacity defendant and I get a judgment against him, his or her spouse will be prejudiced economically. That's one thing. Another thing that this rule says is that they have to list all partnerships, affiliations, corporations, entities that may be prejudiced as a result of this case. And the purpose of this rule is to allow the court to do a conflict of interest screening, right? Because they want to carry out their duties 
and they want to do it early in the case. So it's not like after the judge was uh, intervening in the case, he realized he had a conflict of interest, right? He or she. So in this case, the defendants, appellees, did not comply with the rule. And that is the motion I'm going to be filing. And that is likely why. <laughs> I don't know why. But uh, this morning, my internet doesn't work. And by the glory mm-hmm. and grace of God, we were able to connect after so many attempts. That is so true. We, we really have to tell the story. I mean, we we scheduled our podcast for to, to be recorded at one time. And it took us now over an hour to connect, finally, to establish a connection on your side, on my side. It, it just, we would, we were completely constantly interrupted intervene with and yet we're here so we want what this slide represents and what you're telling me this is disregard of the basic court rules am, am i making too much out of it or this- no no you're not because the essence of justice is an impartial adjudication And these judges are very serious about not having a conflict of interest. They are so serious that they implemented a rule saying the attorneys have to certify anyone that could, whose financial interest could be affected by this case. For example, here, we we haven't done discovery, right? So I don't know with certainty who are private parties that could have a vested interest in this case. But just like one I can mention to you that it is in the complaint, the Lidos Corporation that does targeting, they have targeting officials. It's a private company that does the targeting for the FBI. And they check the names and where they live, et cetera, on, on the nomination forms. And they pass on the targeted individuals to FBI. And that's one of the allegations of the complaint. I'm not saying anything that I'm making up. So I would say, you know, well, Lidos Corporation obviously has a contract with FBI to do this kind of work. So that might be one of the private parties interested. I don't know because, again, I don't have the evidence. So it is not up for me to put that information because I don't know it for a fact. And when attorneys sign a document, even if it's electronically, we are certifying the truthfulness of the facts we put in there. So it is not accurate for for uh, uh, the certification to the court to say that because it's governmental parties, we don't have to certify anyone. That's not correct because there are individual capacity defendants and very likely private entities whose financial, their assets or, or probabilities, whatever you want to call it, might be affected by this case. So that is one of the things that I'm going to be uh, setting forth to, today in my motion when I finally, because I will file it. I just don't know the obstacle course I'm going to have to go through. I already know I'm going to have to leave the house and, and find a hotspot where to connect to file it because they made it very clear that they're not going to let me have internet today. The criminal hackers that are interfering with my with my internet service. Incredible. The things we have to go through. Next question. Question number three. Why wasn't the central question of the case cited anywhere in the legal brief? Did the complaint plead sufficient facts to indicate that plaintiffs have a right to redress? It sounds a little complicated. 
what they're saying is that plaintiff's allegations are so patently frivolous and insubstantial that are insufficient to invoke the court's jurisdiction. Now, as I have explained on many occasions before, we made many short paragraphs with accurate facts, most of which come, 80% come from government documents that are uncontroverted, from newspaper articles that are uncontroverted, from statements included in the discovery in other cases that are uncontroverted and were provided by defendants themselves. So to say that we did not plead sufficient facts, for example, 97% of the people on the TSEB are not known as suspected terrorists. I didn't make that up. That is a conclusion in an audit report of the United States Department of Justice. So they cannot say we didn't allege plausible facts. They also say they repeat false, you know, you remember the discussion of the false and misleading statements. They repeat false and misleading statements that we didn't allege how uh, plaintiffs found uh, that they were on the list when we were very clear about Calvert and Stewart saying how deputy sheriffs told them that they were on a list. That's number one. And that extends to the rest of the plaintiffs. Another thing is the admission by the FBI that the, there are people on that list that do not meet the terrorist criteria. Well, you know what? That's illegal. And one of the things they don't mention at all, which is something we have been insisting on, is that Homeland Security Presidential Directive that gives authority to the FBI to create this list does not authorize putting anybody on that list except known and suspected terrorists. That is an allegation on the complaint. So when they say that it's all patently flavorless and insubstantial, they don't dare discuss the fact that plaintiffs are innocent people that have nothing to do with terrorism and are illegally labeled as suspected terrorists in the terrorist screening database. Another misinformation they give is they insist on the data set because in anticipation that we might prevail, they want to make a little, they want to uh, prepare their own little data set and not let plaintiffs see the full truth of their illegal inclusion in the terrorist screening database. And that's why at all times I have been insistent, it's not a data set, it's a database full replete with false evidence, including these people, these plaintiffs on this terrorist list. So I'm just going to go back, obviously, in the reply brief uh, and saying, you know, it's not patently frivolous. We, uh, they, they try to go into the V2K. Again, that's another false and misleading statement saying that uh, plaintiffs allege that defendants broadcast messages to their brains. That has never been alleged because that is not true. We just said that once they are placed on the list, they are sub subjected to many kinds of torture, which include that. But it is never stated that it is defendants that do that kind of torture. However, we do mention how DHS is directly in control of the fusion centers that carry out the organized talking, the break-ins to the houses of people, which is part of the program. So it's not like they are not, there are not accurate, specific, factual allegations of the consequences of being falsely labeled as a suspected terrorist in a database that it's only 
designated or, or directed for the inclusion of known and suspected terrorists. That was a very long answer, but I thought, was a really, you know, really long. I answer. just feel so passionate about it, you know, okay. because I, because when you read the complaint, the complaint is so factual. It's not ambivalent. It's not conclusory. It is so on point and so factual that, you know, you cannot deny Ted Gunderson's affidavit. You can't. Right. Just to summarize this slide, for the viewers to understand that when it says central question, it's a central question in front of the appellant court. It's not the question that we asked the district court. So in a way, when we went to the district court, we we pled certain facts and we we made certain allegations and then it was dismissed. And now we took a step back and now the question in front of this court, can we even have a day in court? Can we even be allowed to be in that district court with all our facts and pleadings, et cetera? So yes, and, and that, that sentence, that sentence that you include there, the court must accept as true all the well-pleaded facts of the complaint. That is a mantra. That is the golden rule, which was not followed in this case. And that is what, you know, we are reiterating that that's the main reason why this case has to be returned to the district court, because the facts of the complaint were extremely well pleaded, thoroughly researched, thoroughly documented with exhibits that were included in support of the complaint so that the district court knew we were not making this up. And 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 that's why, you know, it's it's a it's a solid pleading that we should, like you say, have our day in court. Question number four. Why does the brief insist? that the plaintiffs failed to plausibly allege an injury caused by government conduct. And there's another version of the same phrase, that the plaintiffs failed to plausibly allege they suffered injury traceable to defendant's conduct. As far as the allegation, we alleged that the illegal inclusion in the TSDB already constitutes injury. So these phrases from the brief are simply not true, but please explain the caveats of these uh, statements. Yes. First of all, anybody that says that plaintiffs failed to plausibly allege that they have suffered injury traceable to defendants did not read the lawsuit because in the lawsuit is very clear that not only the inclusion of innocent people on the terrorist screening database it's an author on an unauthorized act by defendant uh, Ray and Cable that we know now that Cable is no longer there. But it's an unauthorized. It's beyond. It's an illicit action because Homeland Security Presidential Directive was created only to place the names of known and suspected terrorists, and they have admitted that the 97 percent DOJ has admitted that 97 percent of the people on the list are not known and suspected terrorists. So that is an abuse of discretion. It's an abuse of legal authority. Now, as I was telling you before, in the legal world, you have the, the causality, okay? What they're saying is it's not traceable to defendant's conduct. You have to ask yourself, but for X, did Y occur? 
but for the illegal inclusion of plaintiffs and targeted individuals and targeted justice members in the on this list, would they be subjected to organized talking by the fusion centers, which is alleged in the complaint? Would they sustain illegal interference and surveillance of their equipments and their electronic communications? If they were not on the list, would they undergo this? No. And that is also alleged in the complaint. Uh, the abuses with the FISA court, the assessments that FBI goes to the FISA court because it lacks probable cause against any of these non-investigative subjects to obtain an Article Three court warrant to do surveillance of their equipments, of their of their calls, or going to their houses to do what they call the sneak and peeks. Those are alleged in the complaint as well. So what happens here is that defendants are trying to limit the damages alleged to voice to call and do attacks. And that is an improper course of action because the, the complaint is very detailed on the plethora of consequences that come from the illegal inclusion on the list, which pursuant to TransUnion and Ramirez is in and of itself a concrete harm susceptible to redress. No wonder I'm so confused about this because they mix and match. They, they When they say you fail to plausibly allege, they don't specify exactly what it is. And there's so many things that you listed that you, you have to address each one of them separately. So yes, thank you for this explanation. And also, Ellen, let me tell you about traceability. One of the exhibits that we included with the Second Amendment complaint is a Mr. Ted Condorson's sworn statement explaining the program. One of the exceptions to the hearsay rule once, you know, down the line is that you can a court can accept as evidence a sworn statement, a statement under penalty of perjury of a person that is no longer alive like Mr. Gunderson, who was murdered in um, the summer of 2011, uh, maybe four months after he gave this sworn statement. So the assertion that there haven't uh, sufficient facts, clear facts establishing plaintiff's contention, that is incorrect. It is a misrepresentation of what is contained in the lawsuit. I understand Thank you, Anna. Question number five. There are a lot of words here, but I had to include all of them because the brief does not mention or discuss all these words that are found in our complaint. The words like handling codes, exception as to why non-terrorists are included on the terrorist list, secret criteria, non-investigative subjects, mandamus, judicial notice, discovery, motion to compel, Homeland Security Presidential Directive 6, number 6, audit reports, government defamation, and more. All these things are simply ignored as if they never existed in writing. What do you make of it, Anna? Well, that's what we call the Achilles heels, except that they have many Achilles heels because under our constitution, it is illegal to place people on these kind of lists without any probable cause. 
also the Homeland Security Presidential Directive is very clear as to who can be on this list, for example. The audit reports, they don't mention how the Department of Justice concluded that 97% of the people on the TSCB are not terrorists and that you know they, they don't meet the terrorist criteria because they are handling codes three and four that are the non-investigative subjects. They also, those audit reports talk about the FBI's failure to remove people that should be removed from the lists. They don't mention, if you remember Mr. Samuel Robinson's secret criteria to put people on the list. Well, that's completely illegal in the United States. And so they basically avoid uh, discussing those issues, matters, subjects, topics that clearly are going to shock the conscience of any constitutional judge because they are repugnant to our constitution. To me, when a matter is brought up, any of these matters, any of these subjects, you have three options. You either agree with it or you rebut it or you ignore it. And they chose to ignore it. Is that the wisest choice? That's why we need for them to answer the complaint. Because when they, they cannot deny the allegations of the complaint, like I have told you, most 80% of them come from uncontroverted documents. So denying them would get them in trouble for a frivolous answers and false answers. And that's why they are trying to disregard it as if it will go away, but it won't because the complaint is very clear as to the prima facie, the elements of plaintiff's claims. So that's what we're going to, you know, we're going to ask the Court of Appeals to say, this is not just about voice to call. There is a long and documented complaint here that establishes many damages that have been publicly admitted because the FBI has admitted the 200,000 assessments it has done of Americans without a, an Article 3 warrant. They have publicly admitted it in the press. And that is part of the allegations of the complaint. So I just say that you cannot simplify, oversimplify such a detailed and a thoroughly researched complaint. The only reason it's disregarded is because if they have to answer yes or no, they would have to say yes. Question number six, why does the brief insist that the plaintiff's allegations are patently frivolous or obviously frivolous or absolutely devoid of merit or no longer open to discussion or insufficient to invoke the court's jurisdiction? These are descriptive adjectives. These are not arguments saying that uh, something is obvious it's not an argument. It doesn't mean anything. If it's obvious, then you have to show why it is obvious. I had an amazing teacher that taught me to state the facts and not adorn them with adjectives. Let the reader come to it to their conclusion and then come up with the adjectives, you know, themselves. Like, this is outrageous. You know, like when you read the complaint, you... I tried my very best to not include adjectives because I wanted the reader to conclude, oh my God, this is outrageous, but let them conclude it. This, when they say patented frivolous, they don't say, for example, 
X, Y, and C that they allege is patently frivolous. No, they just do a blanket statement as if to discard the well-pled facts. And so, you know, that that doesn't face me because I'm going to make a specific references to specific paragraphs where it's admissions of them or the DOJ. You cannot call that patently frivolous. When the FBI has admitted that they put innocent people that are not that have no ties to terrorism to in a terrorist list, that is not patently frivolous. They don't touch that. They don't discuss the illegality of placing innocent people on a terrorist list. That is not discussed in the reply brief. It's very unfortunate that we have to deal with adversaries who choose this kind of tactics and strategy. I, I don't consider it civil. And it's very unfortunate that I have to call the government defendants uncivil. Um, do you have anything to add, Anna? Well, we go back to our my uh, reference to Bizarro World. The Department of Justice is supposed to be, number one, supervising the FBI that they don't violate people's civil rights. And they're not doing that. And also, they're supposed to be defending people from civil rights violation at the hands of rogue government officials and state officials. And they're not doing that either. So that is very concerning. The shift has gone to defending this kind of conduct. The government has no business defending ultra-virus conduct by any person that acts in violation of the constitutional rights of Americans. Question number seven. Why does the brief repeatedly use the word data set? I thought we dealt with it. The defendants do not provide legal authority to name it so. So we don't know what they mean by the word data set, but yet they keep using it. And we know that data set does not mean the same as database and shall not be accepted as substitute. I totally agree. And I think it's a, a violation of the rules to set forth uh, that they are used inter interchangeably. That uh, I believe the reason it's being done is because when we ultimately prevail in getting access to it, they want to limit. They want to give us just a little spreadsheet. Here it is. And that's not it. That's not the database. Because plaintiffs have a right to know who illegally place them on this list. They have a right to know that. That cannot be law enforcement protected because plaintiffs are not criminals. Plaintiffs were not the subject of criminal investigations. Plaintiffs do not meet the terrorist criteria. So it is called an abuse of process. It is called a malicious prosecution in the first place to have been placed on that database. So they have a right to see not only who put them there, but also all the horrible things that have been done to them. And, and that is all connect, uh, contained or it's supposed to be contained in that database. You know what I wonder? Um, I don't know if you had that problem with the break-ins, but I wonder if uh, those criminals that break into the houses of targeted individuals, if there's like a little depository where they have the box, okay, this is what we stole from Jane Doe. This is what we stole, or they allow the criminals to keep the stuff they 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 steal from from uh, targeted individual houses. I mean, I don't know how it works, but it's definitely something I would want to do discovery on. Where where is the repository where these vigilantes go into the houses and take the stuff, the precious, because it's what they do. 
they take the things that are precious to you, not necessarily valuable, because as you know, in the Gans talking manual, it says, don't take things that are of high value because you can trigger police action. So they just take or break things that are precious and priceless to you, you know? And so I, I would love to know the fusion center depositories for each, and that's its information that has to be contained in that database. Not the data set that they put, and the federal regulations provide that those database, database have to be preserved for 99 years. So they cannot destroy them. That's true. They can't destroy them because it's contrary to law. Yes. We want it all. We want every single word about every target individual from A to Z, the entire story. And another aspect of it is depending on the type of the targeting program that they are exposed to, their rehabilitation will depend on that. So for example, if you were exposed to this type of B2K, then there's a they, we should develop a rehabilitation program for that type of V2K. If uh, you were exposed to this kind of street theater, then there should be a rehabilitation, et cetera, et cetera. The more specifics we know about the program, the better we will rehabilitate target individuals into the society because we've been ostracized to make us sort of social idiosyncratic animals we are we are yes. the others we are not the others we are you and you can be a targeted individual question number eight why does the brief repeat false and misleading statement and we've god knows we we counted them all but these two stand out the false assertion that plaintiffs allege defendants broadcast voice to skull on plaintiffs. So nowhere in the complaints we allege who actually broadcast the V2K. So that is a false statement. And the second one is the plaintiffs do not allege how they found out they were on the list. They were disregarding Calvert and Stewart pleadings and calling them wholly conclusory. It's false. You just have to read the complaint to realize that they are making a false representation to the court. They did it to the district court. The district court adopted it, and now they're repeating it to the First Circuit. And that is a very serious violation of attorney's conduct because you cannot make a false representation to a court. And I have repeated it so many times, and I just don't understand if, if you know some people just think they're above the law. But they, I will certainly bring it up to the court again that nowhere in the complaint have plaintiffs alleged that the defendants in this case are the ones that carry out that torture of V2K. And that is not the only damage. It's like they are trying to limit the only allegation to V2K, and that is not it, as I said before. There are many allegations that comprise the, the plethora of consequences of being placed on this list. And, and so just limiting it to the V2K has the purpose of putting in the minds of the judges that this is fantastical and bizarre when it's not because we already know that the government has admitted uh, that they use the V2K, uh, which is a patented technology. Just because mainstream people don't know about it doesn't mean it's not real, it doesn't exist, it's not patented, and it's not being admitted by the government that they use that tactic, that torture tactic. So 
you know, it's a, a we will bring it with the court that, you know, until when are defendants going to be repeating false statements to the court? Because that's what it is. You know, and I, I feel kind of bad about asking all these questions because most of them are rhetorical and most of them you already answered. And we're just going over and over and asking, why would they do this? And why would they lie about this? And why would they make that false statement when we already made all the answers known? So this is just- I, I'll tell you, if you can, uh, if you remember Jack Nicholson, in uh, a few good men, the reason is because they can't handle the truth. Question number nine: Why does the brief? This is a little at the mouthful. Why does the brief assert the court does not have jurisdiction over individual capacity defendants, and that the Bevens claims do not apply? I combine them because they kind of talk about somewhat similar things. Vives rose uh, uh, because in 1983 civil rights violation cases are against a state or municipal uh, officials, not federal. So Vives uh, became necessary when federal officials violated people's civil rights. And it has been uh, allowed in, in, for example, when they um, do a beating of a person or an unreasonable search and seizure. And so the it has been accepted by the courts in a set of uh, facts that obviously what we're bringing to the court uh, is something so outrageous, so illegal. It comprises such a broad spectrum of constitutional violations from the First Amendment, as you very well know, last week, because you exerted your First Amendment rights, you were ruthlessly punished. Okay, that's one. The, the second one uh, is the Fourth Amendment, the illegal entry into the houses and uh, into the communications and into the emails. And I'm not even going into, and it's not alleged, okay? Because I mean, it's intentionally not alleged, but we will eventually go into uh, the illegal search and seizure of the mind of people. But that is something to talk about 10 steps, 10 steps from now, okay? And then you have the cruel and unusual punishment in violation of the Eighth Amendment. And then you have the Fifth Amendment. We, we have a right to be deemed innocent if we're not accused of any crime. And my plaintiffs have this scarlet letter, including you, that you're a suspected terrorist. Well, that's a violation of your privacy and constitution that's a taking of in in fourth amendment too it's a taking of the persons and their things and their property without a warrant from the court you know so there's just a plethora of, of violations going on here and and i really believe that the court will find uh, this actionable under bevens because it is federal actors that are carrying out these outrageous civil rights and human rights violations yeah. uh, of American citizens that are the equivalent of second-class citizens because their rights are not recognized or protected by the system right now because of this illegal labeling as a suspected 
terrorists carried out under the purview, authority, and direction of defendants. That's true. Uh, individual responsibility is a very important uh, part of it. When we had the Church's Commission, and uh, it was just the CIA, and nobody was sued personally, nothing changed. MK Alter just went underground. Nobody was personally punished. And this, we should not repeat the same mistake. So yes, individual. down down the line, Elen, we need a uh, down the line. We need to ascertain who was in charge of designing the program and the torture for each targeted individual. Who was the criminal that decided, okay, I'm gonna do this to him, do this to her, do that to her, implant that? That that is seven, eight steps down the line from this case. But we're going to get to the bottom of it because those people have to be brought to justice and they have to be put in jail forever. And and it is my hope that somebody in Congress wakes up and begins the, the church committee part two, which Jim Jordan supposedly is trying to do, but no, the real church committee part two and unveiling who are the criminals that have tortured over 300,000 Americans just because somebody illegally placed them on this list. Yes, I I have very low expectation of the Congress, but I join your hopes and dreams. <laughs> there's one more question that we have to address, but before we do that, there's a question that I personally struggle with, and I finally, I think I got a hold of it. And this is, before we get to the last question, I want to discuss this. This is Len's totally amateur analysis because this is something I struggle with. What I see in this case, I see two tracks of arguments. And the one track I called, it's the TSDB track. Everything that is related to the terrorist screening database. And the other track, I called it the trauma track because uh, I couldn't call it the injury track because the inclusion in the TSDB by itself on its own is already an injury. So this is sort of the mind map that I created for myself to understand how this two tracks go in parallel and sometimes they crisscross. So the in the TSDB track, we, the plaintiffs, allege that the legal inclusion of plaintiffs in the TSDB is already an injury. But the defendants say that we fail to plausibly allege that we are on the TSDB and they call it totally conclusory. Obviously, we have a difference of opinions, but these are the positions. So I hope I got those positions correctly. And then there's a trauma track because the defendants say, well, there's also this psychological and, and physiological consequences that these plaintiffs claim as a result of the inclusion in the TSDB. And those specific two that they 
mentioned by name, and we describe specifically, specifically the V2K in directed energy attacks. We never allege that they are carried out by the defendants. And that is a very important position to understand. And in the trauma track, the uh, defendants say, no, plaintiffs allege that the defendants are using vast powers to do that, to do all these traumatic things, specifically V2K and directed energy. Like, like I said before, they, they want to limit defendants' allegations to V2K as if the rest of the allegations are not there. And, and the purpose of that, I believe, is to, uh, you know, repeat the fantastical and conspiratorial mantras. And I, I, I really, I, I really believe that it's their only way to try to argue because you, you cannot, for example, they're, they're saying that TransUnion versus Ramirez says something else and, and doesn't say that it is a concrete injury to be labeled a suspected terrorist. The Supreme Court already said it, that they, 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 nobody can rule differently, okay? Not even the Fifth Circuit, because the Supreme Court is above everybody else. So just the fact that they don't want to acknowledge that that is the holding of a court, you know? From there, the rest of the damages come, because from there, the rest of the illegal actions come. Illegal actions that defendants perpetrate which I have already mentioned a few of them and that are included in the complaint. So just focusing on V2K serves the purpose of, no, you cannot tie the inclusion in the TSCB to the V2K. That's number one. And then number two, they say, oh, they don't allege it. No, no, we carried out Privacy Act requests. We know that the replies were, we do not confirm or deny that you're on the list, okay? So plaintiffs did their due diligence to get as much information possible. But when you file a complaint, you are not expected to have all the evidence in your hands. That is what discovery is for. And the mere uh, fact that they say it's conclusory allegations, no. The allegations are very specific. Plaintiffs believe that they are on this list. And here's the thing. This case would entirely go away, would entirely go away for defendants. If they produced a database and the names of plaintiffs weren't there, but they cannot do that because they know they're there. Sorry. Mm -hmm. And that's the uh, subject of my last slide. Question number 10. Why does the brief argue that when the court denied the motion for preliminary injunction, it was acting correctly? I think in this case, the government simply painted itself in the corner because it is arguing against itself. You know, this case would entirely go away for them if they produce a database, which can be done secretly in the cha judges' chambers as it has been done. Attorneys go to the judges' chamber and expect it there. If they produce this and say, look, Plaintiffs are not on the list. I don't know what they're talking about. Of course, they they cannot alter the documents, right? Um, but the point is, the case would go away, and plaintiffs would have no standing because they wouldn't be in the on the list. But they don't do that. Instead, they're saying, no, they don't know. They didn't allege it well. Their allegation was defective. Uh, you know, what does that tell you? 
it's an implied admission that all of the plaintiffs are on the TSCB. And, you know, the, the refusal to comply with a very limited discovery, which goes to the jurisdiction, to the essence, to the basis of this case, speaks volumes of this. And so um, it, regarding the injunction, I have said before, they did not establish, they did not establish the grounds in an injunction is a balancing act. On the one hand, you have people saying, I am suffering this irreparable harm, the plaintiffs, right? And this happened because after the filing of the lawsuit, everybody's targeting went up substantially. So much so that we had to amend the complaint to include the daughter of one of our plaintiffs, her toddler daughter, because they started attacking her. So on the one hand, you have this irreparable harm uh, allegation. And on the other, you have the government, oh yeah, they might be suffering that, but but the the harm the government would would uh, have is greater if you if you give them what they're asking for, but here the government could not the defendants could not prove that it would harm them. That's why they waited. They asked the court and the court granted. No, 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 no. When you since you're gonna dismiss this case, when when, when the uh, wait for a reply until the uh, motion to dismiss. Why? Because the government could not construe the argument or establish the facts that eliminating the names of the 18 plaintiffs from the TSDB would cause harm to the government because they themselves admit that the people that are included on the TSDB under a secret criteria do not represent a threat to national security as has been admitted under penalty of perjury by Mr. Timothy Grove, former deputy director of the Terrorist Screening Center. And that is an uncontroverted fact that defendants don't want to mention. Goliath, meet David. We're the David, obviously. So this is our show. We covered the legal brief that was just filed by the government defendants in the Court of Appeals. Anna, would you like to say a few words I just want to thank you and honor you. As I said before, you're my hero because I know how hard they're making it on you, on all of us, but particularly on you for being such a brave advocate for all targeted individuals. So I just want to honor you. And I, I don't want, I, I'm going to be working very hard to not only to expedite this matter, but also to do the best I can and file it uh, sooner than, than what I have to. Uh, the reply so that this gets going because the suffering has been has gone on for too long and it has been too painful. So thank you. Thank you so much, Len. Thank you, Adam. You're doing a wonderful job. As you might notice, I already called today's legal segment Goliath Meet David. And I think that will do for an episode. The one aspect of this timeless mythological story that I always enjoy is that David won the fight by using a slingshot that he used with a surgical precision against the giant stomping his feet in anger. That's us. We are David. This is why we're spending so much time digesting every word and every way of reasoning thrown at us from the underbelly of the U.S. government. But when we speak out, our message falls on deaf ears. 
the government pretends it doesn't acknowledge our facts or outright ignores them. Heck, it pretends it doesn't even recognize the facts put forward in its own documents, like the TSDB audit conducted by the Office of the Attorney General, without giving any explanation or reasoning. How do you fight against that? The most we can get is a one-line response like patently frivolous, as if it's supposed to be some kind of an argument. This is not arguing. This is labeling. This is name-calling. Reducing judicial argument to a derogatory adjective and expecting it to be regarded as an acceptable line of reasoning is insulting. What did the defendants say about V2K? That even the idea of the existence of this technology is obviously frivolous. The only obvious thing about this statement is the willful ignorance of the defendants. V2K is a government term. So now the government is arguing against itself and it's getting away with it. Admitting and ignoring facts left and right. Are we going to tolerate this act of judicial pantomime? No. And this is why, until this despicable performance is put to rest, we will be here every Sunday. Rain or shine.